We'll be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. We're going to finish chapter 18. Several years ago, we were in the middle of building a new youth room when I was a student pastor, and you know we had installed these bright fluorescent bulbs, but I wanted some of those cool little Edison bulbs. I don't know if you've seen those, but kind of like some string lights, and so I was... I was stringing up those lights in this in this new room, but I found that as I'm trying to work it up in the ceiling there, that those fluorescents, they were like blinding me. You know, they were so bright, I couldn't see anything. And so I asked one of my students who was helping me. His name is uh, Matt. And I said, Matt, can you just flip off those lights for me? Like, I can't, I can't see anything. It's, and so I found that it just, it got so dark in there without the fluorescence that I couldn't see anything. And so I had him flip the lights back on, and I thought I was going to say something like really profound. But I said one of the dumber things I've ever said. I said, sometimes, Matt, it's better to be blind than to not be able to see at all. (laughs) And you know, when you work with when you work with teens, like, that immediately goes out on social media, you know? And so my brother-in-law chimes in, and he says, that reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Amazing Grace. You know, I once was blind, but now I can't see it all. <laughs> you know, since that day, I've tried to convince Matt that, you know, this is actually like some wise, sage advice that one day he will be able to actually understand. And I think... I think I found the text. Maybe you notice as Jeff was reading that that the blind man, the man who couldn't see physically, actually has a clearer perception of who Jesus is than the crowd around him. He cries out and identifies Jesus as the Son of God. So indeed, it is better to be blind than to not be able to see at all. You know, we might say our point this way, more negatively, I guess you'd say. It's possible to have physical sight and to be spiritually blind. It's possible to have physical sight and to be spiritually blind. Well, what did the blind man see that others couldn't, that they missed around him? Well, he, he saw that Jesus is the son of David and, and that the son of David is the sort of king that might stop and help a blind beggar along the path. He's the type of king that will hear a cry for mercy. And so we, we, we want to look at that, first of all, this title, the Son of David. If you, if you keep notes or you have a printout of the notes, that first point is Jesus is the promised king. There in the first few verses of our text, verse 35 says, he, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, as it, as it develops, as Jesus gets nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, we get these little geographical markers that let you know he's getting closer to his end goal. And so we see that little, that little marker there in verse 35 with, with the mention of Jericho. Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem because Jericho is just 15 or 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. Jericho, you may know it, kind of sits in this valley. It's actually below sea level, and you'd have to travel 20, probably like 3,000 plus feet up in elevation to get to Jerusalem. And this was a, a, a dangerous hike, not only because of the elevation, but it was dangerous because there were thieves and robbers oftentimes along the path. 
If you remember back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, 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 the guy was going the opposite direction from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers because that's what can happen to you on that path. So this was a dangerous journey. And so people would sometimes travel in groups. It was wise to travel in groups. And in this particular time, there's another reason why there might be a lot of people uh, crowding around this path, and that's that it is nearly Passover. We'll see that when Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem. And Passover was a feast that commemorated God bringing Israel out of Egypt, and it was actually a feast where Israelites would make a, a pilgrimage, so to speak, to Jerusalem. So there were many at this time who would be heading up this path to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. But there's something unique. There's something unique about this crowd. This crowd is, is, is not only large because groups would travel together up to Jerusalem. It's not only large because it's Passover, but we've seen that Jesus tends to draw a crowd wherever he goes. And so the blind man sitting on the, on the side of the road, was, was probably used to Passover crowds. He was probably used to groups coming through, but there was something unique about this crowd. Now, this man would be sitting there uh, begging. This was the lot of someone in ancient Israel who was blind. That's just the reality of it. It's not to say that was right. It was what, what was happening. Remember, We've, we've looked at texts, in, even in the Gospel of Luke, where somebody is suffering, and the assumption is that person is suffering because of the judgment of God. And we said that's a, that's a false conclusion. But that doesn't take away the sting that the blind man felt as somebody who was left to beg on the side of the road. He is completely and utterly dependent on those who pass by for charity and for help for him to survive. And on this day, the crowd is abnormally large because there's someone there who can really, truly help, not just, not just get them by for another day. And so the blind man notices there's, there's an extra stir in the air, so to speak. He notices there's something unique about this crowd. And so he asks, what is the meaning of this? What is meant by this large crowd? The answer that's given is, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, that's a, that's a common title for Jesus. He was raised in Nazareth in, in northern Israel. So this isn't, this isn't like a bad answer. Be fun if we could say, well, the crowd gives the, the bad answer, the, the blind man gives the good answer. Well, we, we don't get to say that. But it is, it is important in our text that the blind man doesn't follow up this by crying out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Instead, he shows deep spiritual insight by referring to Jesus as the son of David. And as we alluded to in the introduction, it is in ironic fashion that the one who lacks physical sight actually has deep spiritual insight into the person of Jesus. In fact, this stands in contrast to many of the other people that we've met in Luke chapter 18 who could see physically, but were blind spiritually. The Pharisee, 
who boasted of his own righteousness, the, the rich young ruler who boasted to Jesus that he's kept the whole law, both demonstrated their spiritual blindness in insisting on their own righteousness apart from Jesus, insisting on their own righteousness by their own merits and their own work. Even the disciples were blind in a sense in, in verse 34 in the text we looked at a couple weeks ago where Luke tells us three times they failed to understand Jesus' prediction that he would go to Jerusalem and he would die and he would be resurrected. In fact, one of the ways Luke describes their inability to grasp this is that it was hidden from them. So in one sense, the disciples are even blind. The blind man is actually the only person in the Gospel of Luke to refer to Jesus directly as Son of David to give him the title Son of David. Now that, that teaching that he is a Son of David is in Luke, as we'll see. Even uh, as we got through Christmas and we thought about who Jesus is and his, his identity, we thought about some of these texts. Early on in the Gospel of Luke, Gabriel told Mary that she would miraculously conceive and bear a son, and he would be given the, the throne of his father, David. And that this son will possess an everlasting kingdom. So, in calling Jesus son of David, the blind man gives glory to Jesus by recognizing him as the one who has the right to fulfill the Davidic promise of a son who will come and he will rule and he will reign on a throne that lasts forever. You know, Israel would have been asking as they read those promises in 2 Samuel, well, who is this son? Was it, was it Solomon? Well, I hope not. Solomon started out okay, but the end of his rule was not an eternal righteous kingdom, but a divided kingdom, much less an everlasting one. And so Israel was awaiting this Davidic king, this Messiah, this Savior the one who would arise from the line of David, and the one who would rule and reign in righteousness. And sadly, many in Israel miss that Jesus is that Messiah. He is that King. It's interesting that, that the gospel genealogies work really hard to, to demonstrate that Jesus is descended from the line of David. He is the son of David in that sense. He is the king who will rule forever on the throne of David. And so we don't know, you know, sometimes we see in the Gospels, people say true and accurate things about Jesus without actually fully grasping everything about Jesus. So we don't know the full extent of this man's knowledge of Christ. But we do see that, that he, he recognizes this connection between Jesus of Nazareth and the son of David. And he also knows this, that the son of David he can help me. He can help me. Notice his request. He's crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's asking for the compassionate intervention of Jesus on his behalf. That Jesus would act for him. It is a cry for healing, and it's a demonstration of his belief that, that this Son of David, the Messiah, he has come with the ability to act and the willingness, and the willingness to act. 
Unfortunately, the crowd doesn't see it that way. The crowd doesn't see that Jesus is the son of David, who's actually come to do the very thing that this man is asking to do, which is give sight to the blind. The crowd sees it sort of like the disciples saw the little children earlier in Luke chapter 18 when they're trying to bring kids to Jesus, and the disciples are like, don't bother Jesus. They're boxing out. The crowd, they try to run interference for Jesus. They try to shush him. Would you be quiet already? Stop crying out. So we get a sense of the way the blind beggar was was treated and viewed in Israel. He's seen as inconsequential. He's seen as a nuisance. Quit calling out to Jesus. what, What would you do? Public pressure can make people do some crazy things. right? So we might expect them to be like, yeah, you're right. If everybody in the crowd wants me to be quiet, I'll just quit calling out to Jesus. I'll be silent instead of speak of. But I love this passage because it says, all the more, all the more he calls out. In fact, the the, the emphasis kind of falls on his persistence. He keeps calling out, even in light of the crowd telling him to be quiet and to leave Jesus alone. In defiance of the crowd, he calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He recognizes this is his chance. This is his chance for healing. And it brings really to the forefront again a theme that has been present throughout this entire chapter. That the ones who see themselves as helpless seek mercy in Jesus. That's what we see over and over and over again in Luke chapter 18 is this this helplessness, this desperation. Those who recognize it seek mercy in Jesus. Think about the persistent widow who knew it's, it's the judge who can give me justice. I can't bring this about on my own. Remember the tax collector could not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he cried out for what? For mercy, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. The children brought to Jesus. We said the whole point of that is to highlight the children can't help themselves. They're helpless. And so Jesus says you've got to become like this. You've got to become helpless. You have to admit that there's nothing you can do to earn your own righteousness. The rich young ruler failed to see this. That's why he walked away sad, because he failed to see his own helplessness and his desperate state, and so he failed to follow Jesus. And so over and over and over again in Luke chapter 18, and we'll see something similar uh, next week with Zacchaeus, we see that the proud are brought low and that the low are exalted in Jesus. The ones who know they need a Savior in Jesus Christ are the ones that see his presence and his ministry as an opportunity that they must seize upon rather than cling to this world. So the glorious truth that we get to meditate on from this passage is not only that Jesus is the son of David, not only that we get to hear this man's cry for mercy, but we get to see Jesus respond to the cry of the helpless. Jesus responds to the helpless who cry out to him. So it's the helpless that seek, seek Jesus And Jesus is the type of Savior who responds to those who cry out to Him. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded Him to be brought to Him. 
And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. So though though Jesus is the son of David, Though Jesus has referred to himself, even in this chapter, as the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who will have an eternal dominion, an everlasting rule, we get this exalted view of Christ. Yet even though he's the king, he hears the cry of the blind man, and Luke says, he stopped. He stopped. The crowd... Assuming that, that Jesus would not delay his trip for, for anyone, much less this guy, an unimportant, blind beggar, they told him to be quiet. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't share that perception of this, this man, that he isn't worth the time. Instead, the text says Jesus stopped. And those words... Those words stand out to me as I, as I read this text. As Jesus is, again, he's marching to Jerusalem. We know what awaits him there, his death and resurrection. Jesus will fulfill the purpose for which he came, to seek and to save the lost. He will fulfill his mission in dying for the sins of humanity. So yes, in one sense, nothing can stop Jesus from, from, from his motion towards doing what he came to do from before the foundation of the world. But on his way, he will stop. He does, not, he does not ignore the cry of the helpless. He does not ignore the cry for mercy. And so we see here the, the, the character, the compassion, the mercy, the kindness of Jesus on display. We get a window in which we might peer into the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, You know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. We see this in action here, that Jesus actually delights in the cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. He stops for the blind man. And this is the Jesus that we worship. This is his character on display. This is his mercy and compassion and kindness, as we said. You know, we pointed out a few weeks ago, But it was a snow day, and a bunch of you weren't here, so we won't repeat everything we said. But we pointed out a few weeks ago that if Jesus Jesus is continually defying expectations, he's continually defying what we would expect him to do, what the religious leaders expected him to do, then we must look to the revelation of himself in the Word of God to know him, to teach us about Jesus and his character and his nature. And this is one of those spots, one of those places where we can grow in our appreciation of Jesus, of who He is and what He is like. And we can worship Him more accurately, more appropriately by seeing His his display of mercy here. And as God's people, if you're a Christian this morning, you can grow in your trust in Him as you meditate on His character, as you think about His mercy and His compassion. We can come to understand more clearly that Jesus responds to those in need of mercy. And if we're honest this morning, we admit that we never really outgrow that cry. 
We never really come to a point in our life where we don't need to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. We can admit that there are times, even as believers, when all we can do is cry out, when all we can do is trust the character of God, when all we can do is lean on His mercy. Maybe it's just unending illness, and you wonder what God is up to, and you cry out, God, have mercy on me. The death of a loved one, facing your own impending death, perhaps. Lord, have mercy on me. Maybe it's in light of your own sin. You're overwhelmed by the depth of your own sin. You can cry out to God. He's a type of God that loves when His people turn to Him and cry out to Him. And so Jesus hears the cry. He stops and He commands the blind man to be brought to Him, which, which I think is um, funny, ironic maybe. The, the, the crowd that was telling him to be quiet now has to play a part in bringing him to Jesus. And so Jesus asked the man in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? I think this is, this is a probing question to, to, to tease out the heart of this man. Will he settle for a handout? Or will he ask for something that the son of David must give him? Well, the answer comes quickly, right? Lord, Recover my sight. And so we see again a demonstration of this man's understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he's able to do. That he recognizes Jesus in his response. He even calls him Lord. Lord, recover my sight. You know, not everyone that addressed Jesus as Lord in the Gospels actually understood how accurate of a title that is. Some people used it more just sort of as a respectful title for somebody they looked up to. But given, given this man's understanding that Jesus is the son of David, given this man's trust that the son of David can heal him, it shows that he's, he's probably not using this title flippantly like some of the others we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus demonstrates that he truly is who the man says he is. He is the coming one. He is the promised one. He is the son. He is the king. And he demonstrates it by healing the blind man. Like many of Jesus' miracles that we've looked at, it's immediate. This one is, is not through touch or laying on him. This is by the power of his voice. He speaks and the man sees. Jesus speaks and he creates what was lacking in the man in a moment. Immediately, the text says, he was healed. Now, it's, it's fitting that this, this is the last miracle before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. There'll be, there'll be one in Jerusalem, but on his, on his travel journey, this is the last of, of the miracles. And it's fitting that it's the healing of a blind man. And it's also fitting that he was, it, we were, our minds were sort of drawn back to Nazareth, by the, by the name given to him by the crowd. Well, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why do I say that? Why is Nazareth and, and Jesus healing a blind man? Why, why, why do I think these are clues in the text about something that's going on here and, and this idea of the son of David? Well, because the last time Jesus was in Nazareth, you may remember he was in the synagogue and he gets up and he reads Isaiah 61. We, we looked at this again a few weeks ago for a different reason. But Jesus read this in the synagogue in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you remember, Jesus then rolled up the scroll and he said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one. I'm the anointed one that's come. And part of what I do when I come is to set at liberty the captive, free the oppressed, And guess what? To heal the blind, to proclaim good news. So Jesus demonstrates that he is this promised one, the the Spirit-anointed Messiah. So before entering Jerusalem, in this triumphal entry where people will cry out, before doing this, he demonstrates one more time that he is the one who has come with good news. That he is the one who has come to set the captive free. That he has given sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. He is proclaiming and demonstrating that God's grace has come in himself. These, these miracles then are like billboards announcing that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. This is fulfilled in your hearing today. Watch, I'm going to heal this guy. I'm going to heal this guy. I'm going to set this guy free. Remember, when John the Baptist began to wonder, is Jesus the one who is to come? And that's what we're saying. This text is teaching us Jesus is the one who is to come. Well, John the Baptist wondered, which is kind of crazy that John the Baptist wondered, but he began to wonder, is Jesus the one to come? And he sent some messengers out because John was in jail. And he said, ask Jesus if he is the one to come. Are you the Messiah? Are you the long-awaited Savior? If you remember Jesus' answer, it was tell him, Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've seen me do. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. So before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of the king, we see one last sight here in this miracle. Jesus is the son of David. The one who was prophesied from long ago. He demonstrates that he's both the long-awaited Son and Lord by putting on display his divine power and putting on display his mercy and his compassion for those who cry out. And what Jesus does is he turns this this moment, this, this miracle into a lesson on faith. And then we see that this man's faith resulted in obedience and worship. So our last point this morning, Jesus is the promised king who is worthy of faith, obedience, and worship. Look there at the end of our text. Jesus tells the man, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus tells the man, your faith has made you well. We've said this a few times in Luke. But but that, that could be translated, your faith has saved you. We know that Jesus has healed people apart from their expression of faith. So I don't... I don't know that Jesus is saying, listen, because of your great faith, now you can receive this physical healing. 
We've seen people healed physically apart from the exercise of faith, most notably the ones who were dead. And Jesus brought them back to life. So it isn't that God can't work healing in a person who lacks faith. Instead, I think what Jesus is doing, and I think he's done this a few other times in Luke, is that he's linking his physical healing to the faith that now has saved the blind man spiritually. In other words, his physical healing symbolizes and pictures a deeper spiritual reality. You can go back and look at these other times that Jesus has used this same phrase, your faith has saved you, and it seems like there's a a pattern there that something more than just physical healing has occurred and that it's picturing a greater work, the work of Jesus to come and to seek and save the lost, to offer the forgiveness of sins, and to bring reconciliation with God. Just one example, again, there's others where Jesus uses this exact same phrase and it's clearly linked to the forgiveness of sins. Think Luke 7. But in Luke 17, right, we looked at that a few weeks ago, Jesus healed 10 lepers, right? They all received physical healing. Yet only one came back to praise and thank Jesus. And he's the one, the one that came back and and gave thanks and praise for the work that Jesus had done. He's the one, the only one that Jesus told out of that group of 10 that your faith has saved you. It seemed evident in that text that the other nine had received physical healing. Only one was made well saved in a spiritual sense. Again, there are other places we could go to make that point, but we would also say that the the, the healing of physical blindness points to the greater reality of spiritual blindness being lifted, not only because of the way Jesus uses this phrase, but also because of the way the apostles talk about blindness in the book of Acts. In Acts 26, verse 18, Paul is recounting his conversion. He's recounting Jesus' commission of him as as an apostle. And he says, I was being sent to do what? To open their eyes. To open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of God, uh, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says, through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, that eyes will be opened, that light will flood in where there was once only darkness, that forgiveness will be granted. And it will be granted to whom, according to Paul? Those who have faith in Christ. So I think what Jesus wants to do is is highlight here the necessity of faith, especially in light of what we've seen in the rich young ruler and in the the Pharisee. He wants to proclaim that faith is the required response to him. And what does this faith look like in the blind man? How do we see faith? Not only does Jesus commend his faith, but we see the evidence of his faith in his relying on Jesus for mercy, in his calling out for mercy. The blind man's faith is is this convergence of seeing his own desperate state and knowing that there's one here that can save me. There's one here that can heal me. It's his persistent cry for mercy alongside the recognition that Jesus is the one who has come to give mercy. Faith is 
than reliance. It's not just intellectual belief, it's reliance. Throwing yourself at Christ and His mercy. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, it might surprise you that, that every, everyone in this room who has come to Christ didn't come to Christ with a full knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. In fact, none of us have even arrived there. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to encourage you, you don't have to know everything about the Bible, but know this, that Jesus Christ has come into the world. He is the Son of God, and He's not, he, he's not just a moral man or a good person. He is eternal God. And he has come down from heaven to take on flesh so that he might live a perfectly righteous life. And as a man who has lived perfectly, he might be a substitute for us. You see, your sin and mine, it blinded us from seeing who Jesus really is. We lived in the darkness of sin and in our own selfish ambition. And as a result of of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness, in rebellion against God, we were, we were the rightful recipients. We were owed the wrath of the one true, holy, and righteous God. But He has made a way for us. He has made a way for us to be forgiven. And, and not only forgiven in like you get a clean slate, but actually credited with the very righteousness of Christ. So that you might be reconciled to God. And he's done it through the death of Christ. The death that Jesus just predicted in the paragraph before this. And God has raised this Jesus from the dead in demonstration that he actually defeated death and sin. For all those who would have faith, who would turn from sin and trust in Christ. He's done it. He has done it. And if you see your sin this morning for what it is, if you, if you have a sense of the weight of what we sang about this morning, that it was my sin that, that held him there. If you see your condition as one of darkness and need, then run to him, call out to him. Son of David, have mercy on me. He delights in hearing that cry. He delights in the helpless who, who run to him and cry out for mercy. He's the only worthy object of your faith. Jesus wants to highlight faith here and he wants to highlight in our eyes he's the only worthy object of our complete and utter reliance. We don't have faith in ourselves. We don't have faith in some unknown future. We, you can rely on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we see in our text this morning that Jesus is not only the, the, the worthy object of faith, our trust, our reliance, that we're relying on His death and resurrection, not on our own merits, but He's worthy of our obedience. Right? Following this, this proclamation that He's been made well, His sight is restored, the, the, the text says that He immediately followed Jesus. He became a disciple in that sense, not one of the twelve but he became a follower of Jesus. Now again, I like to imagine the stunned crowd. Right? They were just shushing the guy, and now he's healed. They were just telling him to be quiet and leave Jesus alone. And now he's had his faith commended by Jesus. They were pushing him to the back of the line, and now he's a traveling companion of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. We know that 
The cross awaits Jesus there. We know that Jesus challenges followers to be willing to take up their cross and to follow him. And so what you have in Matthew 18 is this disjunction between guys like the rich young ruler and guys like the blind beggar. The rich young ruler was unwilling to follow Jesus. And he walked away sad because Jesus was simply demanding too much in his, in his estimation. The rich man went away from Jesus unwilling to follow him, but the blind man who started out begging on the side of the road ends up the rich man in the passage. He's on the side of Jesus. He walks with Jesus. And he's following Jesus. And this passage ends with, with this man glorifying God. See, like God is also worthy of glory. What I love about, one of the things I love about the Gospel of Luke is that he loves to highlight the praiseworthiness of the work of Jesus. Luke, over and over and over again, highlights for us the response of the crowd or the response of the person that has been healed. And the response is praise, and it's glorifying God. That's what we have here, the blind man glorifying God. And When you think about how his day started compared with how it is now, how can he do anything else? A moment earlier, he was begging on the side of the road. And when his eyes were opened, the first thing he sees is Jesus' face. So he praises God. He follows Jesus. And so you have this, this healing. You have this following. You have the, the, the commendation of his faith, which, again, uh, we argued points to a spiritual reality. And you have this glorifying God. And I just want to make this point quickly that, that, that I think these are more closely linked than we think. Okay, the, the, the healing or the salvation, the following Jesus and the glorifying Jesus. In other words, it, it, it is from the work of Jesus that our obedience to Him and our glorification of Him flows, not the other way around. It is from the, the, the work of Jesus on our behalf. It, it's from that wellspring that we actually seek to obey and love God and thank Him. J.C. Ryle said it this way, Men will never take up the cross and confess Jesus before the world and live to Him until they feel that they are indebted to Him for pardon, peace, and hope. The more you feel the indebtedness, the more you rejoice in the gospel of Christ, and, and, the, and God used that to motivate us to love and obey God. He goes on to say, The godly are what they are, because they love Him who first loved them, and washed them from their sin in His own blood. Christ has healed them, and therefore they follow Christ. Our obedience flows from this glorious reality of the work of Christ. The blind man praises Jesus and follows Jesus as a result of the work of Jesus. So we too should remember that we obey God out of thankfulness for His mercy to us. We don't obey God so that He might give us kindness. You know, as you think about this passage, perhaps this week, you can take some time and just consider Christ. Right? If you read the book of Hebrews over and over and over, it's like, what should we do? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about the goodness 
and the character of Christ on display in this passage. Maybe, maybe the words Jesus stopped will sort of just be bouncing around in your mind as a reminder of a merciful and compassionate Christ. Or the question that Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Perhaps that will be a reminder of you, uh, of God's willingness to come to the aid of the helpless for, you, for, for your good and for his glory. Or maybe the title Son of David can, can spur your thinking about the storyline of Scripture and you can see the glory of God as He's orchestrated history so perfectly and sent His Son at the exact right time to be the King that was long awaited and not only, not only to rule, but to rule in compassionate forgiveness of sin. And I wonder if we talk, talked about our obedience flowing from the work of Christ, I wonder if you won't see that intentionally thinking and considering the person of Jesus won't stir your affections for Christ, stir your love for Him, and cause you to more greatly desire to walk in obedience to Him. This praise and glory flows from the work of Jesus. And even the crowd must join in this chorus of praise. That's how the text ends. This this crowd is giving praise to God. They even must admit that this is the work of God. There's nothing they can attribute it to outside of that, and God must receive the glory for what He has done. And so the text ends with this, this joyous praise and glory of God in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more praiseworthy than I once was blind, but now I see. We too can respond in praise for the work of Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, the scales have fallen off the eyes, so to speak. You were blinded, the New Testament says, from seeing the glory of the gospel. But God has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The one who said, let there be light, has shown light in our hearts. What light? The light of the gospel. He has caused light to shine out of darkness. He opened our eyes to see Christ and to behold Him as our only hope. And now we rejoice in Jesus. We glorify Him. We follow Him because He is worthy and because He has demonstrated great mercy to us in the giving of His own life. We don't proclaim ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we again admit in and of ourselves we we were walking in darkness and the futility of our own minds that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We praise and thank you for that. May May we rejoice in the gospel this morning. May you stir our hearts to love you and your son Jesus Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we worship you and love you to a greater degree. In Jesus' name, amen.